Uh, good morning, River City. I'm Pastor Jake, one of the pastors here, and we are in Luke's Gospel for a few more weeks at least. Um, as, uh, as then we'll transition for a couple weeks, kind of standalone, moving into uh, the summer where, um, as you heard this morning, we'll switch to one service at 10 a.m. during the summer, um, and we'll get back into uh, the Psalms this summer. And there'll be multiple voices you'll be hearing from. Um, I think we'll, Lord willing, make it from Psalm 12 through Psalm 24, which will be good. Um, but you can turn to Luke chapter 10, where we'll be today. One of our core values as a church is mercy, that we would have compassion for the harassed and the helpless, that we would seek to extend the mercy that God has shown us to others. And in this text this morning, this value is leveraged by Jesus and, and he does so in this masterful way, Jesus does, to expose the self-righteousness in the heart of a man that we'll meet here in a moment. So, Luke chapter 10, we're looking at one of the most well-known and, and I think maybe misunderstood parables of Jesus, the parable known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, even in a culture like ours... Uh, to be honest, with all the technology and the history and the access that we have at our fingertips, uh, we are a fairly low, we have a fairly low level, level of biblical literacy. Uh, but even still, in our culture, uh, the Good Samaritan is one story that most people at least understand or they've heard of. Right? It's become synonymous with being nice to other people, helping someone in need. I read a story just this week. The headline was, Good Samaritan jumps into bay to save baby after car accident. And the picture was of a car accident where at least the child, maybe others, were thrown from the vehicle over the edge of a bridge and someone jumped off to save the child. Right? They were labeled a Good Samaritan. There are laws kind of loosely called Good Samaritan laws that protect a do-gooder from, from um, litigation. So say you're in a car wreck, and I come along and I pull you from the car wreck, the fiery death that you're going to experience. I save you from that because I'm a Good Samaritan, right? And I pull you from that, but in the process, I break your arm. Good Samaritan laws would protect me from you suing me. Although I saved your life. I broke your arm. You can't be like, well, thanks for saving my life, but I'm suing you for damages for breaking my arm. I mean, in some places you can. That's a, a good Samaritan law, right? In fact, this particular parable is treated and understood by folks who maybe know little else about Christianity or about Jesus as a kind of shorthand for Christianity, right? Jesus is, must be all about being nice to people. It all really boils down to helping others. So if that's the case, if that's the, the basic level, the shorthand, if you will, for Christianity, then, then why do we bother to talk about doctrine? Why do we talk about sin and repentance? Why worry about evangelism or sharing your faith with other people? You should all just be nice to people. Isn't that the most important thing we read from the story of the Good Samaritan? Right? That's kind of how it gets boiled down. Now, don't get me wrong. There is some significant take-home application for every one of us this morning who reads this parable, baked right into it. But the context in which this story is told, Jesus is actually 
telling this parable in response to a pair of questions from a man who was asking about how to obtain eternal life. That's where the question starts. So we need to read that this parable in light of the context of the interaction Jesus is having with this particular person and the question that he's seeking to find an answer to. So we need to also read this parable in light of the larger context of Luke. If you've been studying Luke with us last spring and this spring, Luke's whole focus in the book of Luke and then in through the book of uh, Acts, which Luke also wrote, the sequel to Luke's gospel, if you will, he's trying to communicate that Jesus' purpose and mission is to seek and save the lost. So we need to understand this parable in light of that larger context. Because the lawyer that we'll read about in this passage, we are, as humans, are experts just like him at self-justification. You and I often have unwarranted confidence in our own abilities, particularly our ability to be good, to earn righteousness. But Jesus exposes this inability to earn for ourselves what is only given by His grace. And that once we are shown grace, we are invited to follow Him in His life. So that's what the context I want us to see. It's the larger setup today as we read this parable that's so familiar to many of us. So let's pick up and read our text together. Uh, Luke chapter 10, we'll read verses 25 through 37. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he, was, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now this section is marked by two questions and two responses. And I say responses because they're not exactly answers, at least not in the way that the questioner was hoping. Jesus does this so often, masterfully, when he gets a question thrown at him, because the person who's asking the question so often already has an answer in mind, Jesus turns it around by asking him another question, hoping to draw out of the person who is asking the true motives of his heart. 
So we're going to break up the text into those two parts, kind of according to those two questions. Question one, we read in verse 25, and question two in verse 29. And before we dive into these questions, Luke gives us just a little bit of detail about the man who's asking this question. Luke tells us this man is a lawyer. Now, he isn't a lawyer in the sense that we would know a lawyer today working in a courtroom on either the prosecution or the defense This man was an expert in the law of Moses. He's that kind of lawyer. As a religious Jew, this lawyer would be well-versed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. And he would know God's law inside and out, the rules, the loopholes, the caveats, the application. He would know all this very, very well. And Luke says this man stood up, which means that likely at this point Jesus was teaching, and as was custom in the day, people would sit around, and when they wanted to ask a question, or when he was done speaking in a particular section, people would stand up to ask a question. So he stands up, and Luke tells us the interaction and the intention of his question was to put Jesus to the test. I love how Luke tells us like the motives of this man right away in both, both questions. He's trying to trip him up. And this happens a lot with the religious leaders of the day trying to pin Jesus into a corner based on something he's already said. And so he stands up and tries to answer or ask him a, a gotcha type question. So the first question this man asks is this. This is our first idea built around this question. Teacher, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is a little bit of an odd question. But Jesus gets asked this exact question or a variation of it more than once. Because to gain an inheritance, what must I do to inherit? To gain an inheritance, you don't do anything. Inheritances are passed down. The English uh, root word of of that word inheritance implies an heir. So in order to obtain an inheritance, you have to belong to the family line of whatever it is that's being passed down generation to generation. Teacher, what must I do to earn something that by definition is explicitly not earned? He knows, being a good study of the law, that inheritance is very important. This is a birthright for those who belong, right? So he he knows this. Now, Jesus could have just said what I would have said and just turned it around and be like, man, that's a stupid question. Ask a different one. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't do that. Mostly because he's nicer than me. But the idea of wanting to escape the punishment of death is a real thing. And Jesus knows that too. There's legitimate fear. Many people at that time, not unlike today, There's a sense of cultural worry, wondering, how really is someone made right before God? How might one escape hell or or, or attain some kind of hopeful future instead of a hopeless one? See, in Luke 18, just a few pages further, you don't have to turn there, but if you you would... uh, Turn there, or when you go and read ahead, Jesus is asked a similar question by a rich young ruler. He asks, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In Acts, Luke's sequel, right, to the gospel account, Peter preaches a message to those in Jerusalem. After Jesus has been crucified and resurrected and ascended, 
Peter preaches a message in Acts 2 telling the people, you are the ones who crucified Jesus. And the, Acts 2 says that they were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? We recognize we're guilty and we cannot bear this punishment. Acts chapter 16, Paul is in jail in the dark, singing praises to God. And an earthquake shakes the building. And the doors and the chains are loose. And the jailer comes running in, scared for his life, because the loss of these prisoners doesn't just mean the loss of his job. They're going to probably kill him for his failure. And not knowing what's happening, feeling like all is lost, pulls his own sword to take his own life. And Paul says, don't, don't do it. We're still here. And the jailer falls down trembling in front of Paul and asks, what must I do to be saved? See, this is a a legitimate question this man's asking. No matter his motives, it's a legitimate question. And it's a question that each of us must wrestle with as well. Every one of us has to ask this question. What do we do to gain eternal life? How exactly is it that I'm accepted by God? How do we get into this other kingdom? How do we receive the promises of God for hope? You and I must wrestle with this question as well. Now, this lawyer had understood and organized in his own mind God's law in such a way that he, along with most other religious Jews, believed that they were indeed able to faithfully keep God's law, to show themselves to be righteous and worthy of the covenant blessings of abundant and eternal life. And right there, Jesus was pointing out the fault in his question. It wasn't just the question itself, which is legitimate. It's the motive that this guy thought he was pretty okay. And so Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He turns it back on the man. The man says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Basically, how how is it to you? This is the genius move of Jesus. Here, he puts it back on the lawyer to answer. And where does he point the lawyer? To the word. He points him back to God's word. If you're going to find an answer to the question about eternal life, then there's one place you can go. And so the man answers, verse 27, as good as any good Jewish person would answer, he answers what is known as the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then the lawyer quotes Leviticus 19, which pairs those two together. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what's interesting is this is the answer Jesus himself gives in two occasions. Mark 22 and, excuse me, Matthew 22 and Mark 12. When Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? The answer Jesus gives, it's the Shema from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And from Leviticus, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, he said, this is Jesus said to the lawyer, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Does it surprise you at all that this man answers, well, uh, love God and love your neighbor? Basic summary of the law, so keeping them means I'm good, right? 
And Jesus' answer is, yep, you're right. Your answer is right. Now, before you start emailing me quotes from Martin Luther on justification by faith alone, stay with me. That's not all Jesus says. He replies, you have answered correctly. You're right. Do this and you will live. Now, this is very important. Because in both this answer and in the answer the lawyer gives to Jesus after the parable in in verse 37, the lawyer gives the right answer. And in both cases, Jesus says, do it. Do it. Right? This is important. Why is this important? Because the lawyer can give the right answer with his mouth and then turn around and completely ignore actually doing what he says needs to be done. This is very important for understanding this parable that Jesus gives as a response to the next question that Jesus asks, which leads to the next question. The lawyer, verse 29, desiring to justify himself, there's Luke helping us with his motives, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Seeking to put Jesus to the test and desiring to justify himself. Basically saying, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Leviticus 19 commands it. But who actually does that apply to? Where's the line? Where's the loophole? Who counts as my neighbor and who doesn't count as my neighbor is the question he's asking. Because I think this lawyer actually saw himself as a faithful law keeper. He loved God and he loved his neighbor provided his neighbor was on the approved neighbor list. Right? In this case, it likely consisted of family and close friends. They were like-minded and of the same status. In fact, you could read the letter of the law and miss the spirit of it. Even in Leviticus 19, speaks of not bearing a grudge against the son of your own people. So clearly, neighbor only equals fellow Jew at best, according to this lawyer, potentially. And Jesus replies in verse 30 through 35 with a parable. This is the context of the parable. Exposing the heart of the man who's seeking to justify himself. Hang on to that, okay? Now we get into the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles, and drops from Jerusalem... About 25,000, excuse me, 2,500 feet above sea level, not 1,000, that's a mountain. 2,500 feet above sea level to Jericho, which, which sits about 800 feet below sea level. So over that 17-mile run, there's a loss of elevation of about 3,000 feet. So you were literally going down to Jericho. And the road was known for robbery and thieves. And so Jesus, using this example... Everyone who's listening would have understand exactly the context that he's talking about. It's a dangerous path. People would know it. It would have a history and a reputation. And so this lawyer, being Jewish, would have assumed that the traveler in the parable was also Jewish. He gets mugged, stripped of all of his clothing, and beaten to within an inch of his life and left for dead. Bloody, unidentifiable, can't tell who he is based on 
probably his face being beat up, as well as any markings on his clothing that would tell us of his status or his stature or his culture would all be stripped down to basically his undergarments. And he was unconscious. So they didn't know if he was dead or alive or breathing or anything. Jesus continues, verse 31 and 32. Tell of two men who, by chance, are going down the same road. One is a priest and one is a Levite. The priest would have been a descendant of Aaron. Priests were the ones who performed all the rituals and sacrifices in the temple. They were the holy men of Israel. The Levite would have been from the tribe of Levi, not descendants of Aaron per se, but still those who performed duties in the temple served alongside the priests in carrying out the duties of worship. And so one would expect that a religious person would stop to help a man who was injured. But Jesus tells us that both of them crossed to the other side of the road in order to avoid even going near the man who's lying unconscious in the ditch. Now, I've read a lot of commentary and interpretation this week trying to infer the motives of the priest and the Levite. Are they worried about being made unclean by touching the dead body? Uh, maybe because they can't identify him. They don't have feel they have a responsibility because, well, they can't prove he's a Jew. Therefore, maybe he's not their neighbor, not their problem. Uh, are they worried for their own safety? I mean, who knows how long this guy was beat up? Maybe it was five seconds ago and these robbers are still hanging around and they'll take me next. Now, we don't know those motives. And honestly, it really doesn't matter because these aren't real people. Remember, this is a story that Jesus is telling. But what's important is that neither of these two men that Jesus highlights, the priest or the Levite, even stopped to see if the man was dead or not, let alone offer any kind of assistance. That's the picture. The the people you'd expect in a story to be the heroes are, in fact, not heroes. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, the man who was beat up, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, if you're following the progression of people walking by in the story, a priest, a a Levite, in your mind, you're thinking, maybe the next would be just an average, everyday Jewish, you know, carpenter or fisherman or something. But... Jesus doesn't do that. He, he leaps over the, what you'd think was the next in sequence and goes all the way to a Samaritan. Now, this might not mean as much to you, but Samaritans were a mixed race people. Samaritans exist because of the kingdom of Israel was split into two after the reign of King Solomon. Israel in the north, while in captivity, intermarried with non-Jews, thus creating these Samaritans with a partial Jewish heritage. And make no mistake, they were despised by the Jews. In the Jewish Mishnah, which is a collection of oral traditions that developed around how to apply the law for Jewish people, in the Mishnah it says this, He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like to one that eats the flesh of swine. The, 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 the disdain for even, even having bread, having a meal with a Samaritan, was akin to violating God's law of cleanliness and purity by eating, in this case, pork. So I can't overstate the animosity in both directions between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. Hated. 
each other. I can't overstate that enough. And so of all people to stop and to help someone, being a Samaritan, this would have been uniquely offensive to the lawyer. Right? You can think of the person you dislike the most in the universe. Times ten, that's how disgusted this person, this lawyer likely was. And then verses 34 and 35 unpack this wonderful, generous picture of compassion. Look what the Samaritan does. I'm just going to break it down into bullet points. He first doesn't pass over to the other side. He goes to him. He, doesn't, he comes upon him and then goes to him. He binds up his wounds. He stops the bleeding. He pours on oil and wine. This would both clean and soothe his wounds and bruises. As an aside, both oil and wine were poured out on the altar before the Lord. And the priest and the Levite couldn't be bothered to stop, but the Samaritan offers oil and wine to care for this broken man. This Samaritan puts the wounded man on his own animal, likely a donkey, possibly a horse, but but meaning he got down from this animal and walked alongside while the man who was broken was put up on top to ride. He takes him to an inn for shelter and rest. And don't think like Holiday Inn. Think like empty room. <laughs> right? Could be a barn for all we know. It's a place where a traveler would stay along the way. This was not a luxury suite with continental breakfast. He takes him to this place. And then he's, it says he cares for him. Overnight, tending to his wounds. And if that wasn't enough... If that itself wasn't enough, the next day, this is how I know he cared for him over the night. He, he stayed till the next day, takes out two denarii, about a day's wage for a day labor. So he takes out two of those and gives them to the innkeeper to cover the costs of housing, medical needs, and food for as long as it takes to get this man back on his feet. And then he says, when I return, if you need to spend more than this, Put it on my tab. I'm good for it. Between room and board and medical supplies, this two, these two coins, if you will, would have covered anywhere from two weeks to a month, maybe more, for the stranger to remain at the inn for no cost to himself. Think about that. This is remarkable. I mean, even if the Samaritan just stopped, like cared for him, brought him to the inn and left him there, the man then himself would have been responsible for any care and housing and food because he had no money. He had everything was taken from him on the road. And so if he was in need of care, the innkeeper could have been nice to, in a sense, kind of put it on credit. But if this man couldn't pay for that, the innkeeper was well within his rights to exact the cost of caring for the man out of indentured servitude, slavery, to make him work to pay off that debt. So not only did the Samaritan save the man from physical harm, he also protected him from a huge debt and potentially years of servitude and slavery. The robbers in this story beat the man and are guilty of violence against him. That's clear. The priest and the Levite avoid the man and both stand guilty, not for violence, but for inaction, for neglect. But the Samaritan calls, cares for him personally and guarantees, guarantees his care out of his own supply and then promises to return. See, this whole story is one giant setup 
to the question that Jesus is going to ask in response to the question the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus turns it back on him after telling the story in verse 36. He says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Who is my neighbor is the wrong question. Jesus tells the parable and turns the question around, holds this story up like a mirror in the face of the lawyer to reveal where his sin is. Jesus is poking in at the heart here of this lawyer. The lawyer wants the command to be narrower. He wants the neighbor to mean family and friends only. But the love your neighbor command is way wider than that. And it extends to people you don't even like. Jesus says something earlier in Luke chapter 6. He goes, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And so Jesus asked, which one of these proved to be a neighbor to the man? Which one obeyed the commandment? And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. I don't think the lawyer can even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That would be the straightforward answer, right? Who proved to be a neighbor to the man who was wounded? Samaritan. The Samaritan would be the right answer. Instead, this guy's like, uh, the last guy, the third one you mentioned, the one who showed him mercy. This is another example where Jesus is far better than I am. Because I'd push back on the guy. Which guy did you say? Who was it? Say that again, a little louder. Did you say the Samaritan was the obedient one? That both the priest and the Levite were disobedient? Is that, is that what you said? But Jesus doesn't do that. And in fact, Jesus' words are heavier than any sarcastic, cynical mocking that I could level at this guy. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you go and do likewise. Go do it. You know the answer. You're right. Those who inherit eternal life, those who receive the covenant blessings promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David, those who love God with all their heart and soul and strength, and those who love their neighbors, those are the ones who who get it. And it's almost as if Jesus is asking without asking, how is that working out for you? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you must love God with all of your being and love your neighbor unselfishly. And you must keep these commandments perfectly. This is why Jesus' closing response to both questions weighs so much. Do this and you will live. And we know this. And the lawyer knew this. And everyone listening knew this. That's impossible. If the only way to be accepted and acceptable before God is by keeping the law, then we are indeed a hopeless people. I mean, James 2 tells us that forever, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. We, we know this is true. And so part of what I, I hope in the wrestle is this passage does three things. First thing that I hope this passage does, as it's doing in my heart this week, is it's exposing our own hearts. This is where we ask, are we in the business, like this lawyer, of self-justification? 
right? We tend to have two lists of sins. These are the ones God really doesn't like. And these are the ones God doesn't mind as much. Fortunately, mine are on this list. Right? Funny how we might have different lists, but I bet most of yours that you think God doesn't care as much about are also on that list. We have two lists of neighbors. There are the ones to whom I show hospitality and mercy, but there are those who are unworthy of mercy. I mean, who could hold that belief or vote for that person or live that way? Do we find ourselves in the place of the lawyer and of the priest and of the Levite in this parable? That our lack of mercy is an indicator of perceived lack of our need of God's mercy. That we are ungracious because we don't think we need grace. That we are stingy and we are not generous because we feel like we deserve what we have. Where we're at risk of thinking that we have earned the blessings that God offers only by grace in Christ. Where's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction there? That's the first thing. To root out, to to let this story serve as a mirror for us as well. To help us see the places where we are prone to self-justification. Two, what I hope this story does for us, is that Jesus is reminding us and upholding the beauty of God's law so that we can more clearly see the glory of the gospel. This is where we ask, is Jesus the hero? Do we see ourselves as the man along the road who was beat up and left for dead, bloody and alone and dying? We are the ones in desperate need of someone to pull us from the gutter. We needed someone to see us with compassion. We needed a neighbor to love us. Friends, be careful to not turn this passage into merely a measuring stick for righteousness. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a model of self-sacrificial love that we can follow, and we'll get into that in just a second. It's important, but don't miss the picture of the gospel here. Jesus is the better neighbor. Jesus comes near. Jesus binds up our wounds. Jesus anoints us and blesses us with oil and wine. He gives us his spirit. Jesus pays our debt. Jesus has promised to come again to fully and finally welcome us home and make all things new. See, it takes more than right answers to obtain eternal life. It requires a life of perfection. And none of us has or can hold that standard. Only One, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Only him. He's the only one who can say, I have loved the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I have loved my neighbor as myself. And in what Martin Luther called the great exchange, he, Jesus, the perfect one, takes all of our imperfection and gives us all of his perfection. And we receive this by grace through faith in Christ. That's the second thing I hope we see. And the third is this. That in view of the rescue of God, with Christ as the one who binds up our wounds, cares for us, pays our debt, and has promised to return to complete what he began, in light of this, now do we hear the gentle call to go and do likewise. 
We don't leave it at the side and say, I don't need to do that. This is about Jesus loving me. That's, that's not all that's there. It moves us now somewhere. We don't go and do likewise now to earn an inheritance. We can't do that. Now, by God's grace, we are welcomed into His family, are now set on His path. It's an overflow of the love of God and mercy in Christ toward us. We are now moved towards others with mercy and compassion. That we would live this way as evidence of the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives. That this kind of selfless, compassionate neighboring is clearly not natural for us as humanity. So when it's seen and experienced and expressed, it's proof that God is doing something in us, not us. Oh, that our lives would be marked by this kind of transformation that comes through the gospel of Jesus. We don't earn our position before God. We live out now this new identity, following Jesus, the true and greater neighbor, the friend of sinners and the rescuer of our souls. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we too often have unwarranted confidence in our own goodness. We ask by your Holy Spirit, you give us humility to see ourselves as we ought, to recognize how great our need and how much greater your mercy We are grateful that you delight to welcome in the weary and the heavy laden, the broken and the bruised, that we might have our wounds bound and be given rest for our souls. Holy Spirit, strip us of pride and self-righteousness and remind us of your undeserved mercy so that your mercy toward us might spill out in mercy to those around us. Work in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen and amen.